Hi, this is Steve Smith and Rich Young from Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner, and welcome to our Olympic podcast on uh, new Olympic sports. One of the neat things is that there's a few different ways for sports to be added to the program of the Olympic Games. Rich, why don't you walk us through some of the different ways the sport can do that? So, Steve, as you know, there's a long list of sports that would like to get into the Olympic Games. There's only 28 sports that make the Summer Olympic Games. There's less pressure on the winter than the summer. What a lot of people don't know is that in addition to those 28 sports that are on the program of the Olympic Games, there's a long list of recognized sports, water skiing, tug-of-war, bowling, and the like. Many of those, squash, bowling, and others, have tried to get into the Games and will continue to try to get into the Games. Factors that the IOC considers are whether it's new, whether it would interest younger people because they're trying to address a younger generation, the cost of the sport, and whether the sport is covered worldwide, number of people involved in the sport, and the like. And against that backdrop, you've got some real limitations. They try to keep the number of participants in the Olympic Games to no more than 10,000. That won't be, there'll be more in Tokyo, but Paris is trying to get there. And so it turns out to be a zero-sum game. If you're going to add a new sport, like not a new sport, a new discipline within a sport where there'll be more competitors like three-on-three basketball that Jim Tooley will talk about. That means that the number of athlete slots need to come from either other disciplines in that sport or other sports. So if you, if you take away, if you add basketball players, you have to take away weightlifters or wrestlers or whoever else it may be. The other limiting factor is that the IOC is trying hard to hit gender equality. And so, you know, historically, there have been a lot more men competing in the Olympic Games than women. So if you get a new sport coming in, you can be relatively sure that it will have either equal men and women participation or more women than men. So, Rich, you were talking earlier about the difference between you know, new sports joining the Olympics and new disciplines, and we're very fortunate to have join us uh, Jim Tooley, the CEO of USA Basketball. For Jim and USA Basketball, they're welcoming 3x3 or 3-on-3 to the Olympic program this year, and it'll be the first time that's in the Olympics. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to have you. So, we're... Um, uh, talking a, a little bit about USA basketball and the sport of international basketball and the recent addition of three-on-three, which will be played in Tokyo this year for the first time. So what, from your perspective, what were the keys to getting three-on-three recognized and added to the Olympic Games? Yes, well, I had the good fortune of being on one of the FIBA working commissions back uh in the early 2000s, actually. And uh, it was talked about for a long time. And then Patrick Bauman, who was the former Secretary General who passed away, he had a lot of, uh, um, did a lot of work with the IOC to kind of adapt it and show how great it was going to be for the Olympic movement. And so as this, to get this up and running, the IOC agreed to put it in the Youth Olympics in 2010. 
and it was also in, in the 2014 and 2018 versions of the Youth Olympics. And so we were really excited when it got approved to, to be in the Summer Olympic Games um, with eight teams. And it, it's a it's a great initiative, and and it's it's getting the sport in parts of the world that it would not otherwise be in, because you have teams from Romania and Mongolia now that are going to be represented in the Olympics through three x three. So um, that was one of the things that the IOC wanted to see is that what kind of impact is this going to have worldwide in, in in young people playing the sport? That was really important to them. So not only did they promote a lot of national team events in 3x3 the past uh, 11 years or so, but also a world tour and a lot of other uh, just 3x3 events to build uh, the infrastructure and ecosystem of it worldwide. So we're excited to have it. We're, we're going to be represented uh, on the women's side by four terrific players that start training camp tomorrow. They're flying in today to Las Vegas, and we're just excited about the possibilities. Jim Rich, on the eight teams, is that four men, four women? Yes, yep, four four women, four men, so it didn't hurt. You know, the IOC had to be mindful of their quota, obviously, to make sure they're, you know, because they also allowed in some couple other sports as well. So we felt like this was a good start. Got eight men's and eight women's teams in. Hopefully in future Olympics that may grow to 12 or, you know, it would be ideal to have 20 teams, which is what it is for the FIBA 3X3 World Cup. And, and how would how would a country like Mongolia, did they win qualifying tournaments or how did they get in? They did. Um, what the, the first way to qualify for 3X3 is to host a lot of events and do have a lot of 3X3 activity in your country. And it was based on the top 100 players in your country playing and based on that, each country got a ranking system. And Mongolia did a lot of activity, and they were able to secure a spot that way. And other teams are able to get in by uh, going to different qualification tournaments. And if you had a team in 5x5 basketball in the past two Olympics, you really only had one shot at a qualifying tournament. If you did not, there was another a second qualification tournament called the the universality tournament, which ensured that teams that had not been in in the Olympics in five x five basketball would have a chance to get in. And so, a uh, country like Belgium got in through that way on the men's side. So, you know, again, FIBA was pretty mindful of making this for everybody, not just um, you know it wasn't designed for the United States because basketball is so popular here. You know, they didn't. They don't, FIBA doesn't look at us needing 3x3 to fuel basketball in this country, which is true in part, but we certainly want to put a a good foot forward. But it is really having an impact in having teams from Mongolia, Romania, and there were a lot of other, you know, smaller teams in the qualifying process that had a chance. So um, it really did give a lot of new teams uh, a chance at the Olympic Games. And Jim, in the, in the process of getting three by three on three into the games, how important was its appeal to the younger generations in your mind? Uh, it was, that was a key component. They wanted to make sure that this was, uh, you know, FIBA's 
goal. I remember the first time they put it up on, in a meeting, it was from the streets to the Olympics. And they wanted to make sure this was a real urban approach and that young people were playing it. And so a lot of the events were done in parks around the, around the world, kind of tied in sometimes with skateboarding events and some other different type of things that were really appealing to the younger generation. And I think it's, you know, while 3X3 was very popular here in the United States in the mid nineties through hoop it up and Gus Macker, um, it kind of tapered off and certainly never had the opportunity to represent your country in it. So I think after the, the game, the 3X3 appears at the Olympic games on NBC, I think it's just going to have a gigantic boom and we're excited for it. How did Jim, how did you prove that 3X3 was popular with the younger generation? Was it, participation or statistics or surveys what what impressed the IOC um, my understanding and I, I while I was on the working group I wasn't on the front line of the of the conversations with the IOC um, but my what I understand is that it just over time starting in 2010 it just showed the amount of tournaments that were happening worldwide and each year there was this graphic that FIBA showed and, you know, there was more activity being played all over the world. In China, like I said, we already talked about Mongolia. But in, in a tournament in 2011, for example, there were, there were teams from Guam and Sri Lanka represented. New Zealand's done a very good job in, in 3X3. So they, what FIBA did is they demonstrated how this was gonna be, uh, be for everybody in that smaller countries had a chance. And the amount of growth of events that were happening worldwide just, just really increased every year. And I have to give them credit for, for pulling it off in a fairly short amount of time. Oh, that's great. You know, I know that the IOC looks at events in the Olympics as a zero-sum game, that if new get added, old get cut. Did we have yep. to give up any uh, of the five-on-five five, uh, basketball uh, teams that were eligible for five on five? We did not, but in the early stages, that's a good question. In the early stages, it was contemplated. It was thought that maybe the five X five tournament had to go down to 10 teams instead of 12 teams or the, uh, the 12 team, the 12 person rosters would be 11 or 10 person rosters. But fortunately we did not have to do that. So it got to stay uh, the 5x5 got to stay intact as it had been for, you know, a number of decades. So, Jim, I'm going to put you on the spot a bit. Uh, who do you, who would you say is favored to, to win the gold medal in Tokyo in both the men's and women's? I would say on the men's side where we, unfortunately, we don't have a team that qualified. I would say Latvia is, will be favored. Latvia and Serbia. They have been the two consistent teams on the FIBA World Tour that have been very strong. Um, and I would say those two teams would be favored on the men's side. And on the women's side, I, of course, I'm going to have to say the United States because uh, that's just how we think. But, it, you know, it's a tough format. It's a eight-team uh, field. Everybody plays everybody, and after those seven games, uh, teams are seeded one through eight. The teams that are seven and eight, they go home. They're done. 
teams that are one and two go right to the semifinals and teams uh, three through six uh, do battle to see who's going to meet the top two teams in the semifinals. So it's a pretty uh, robust format, but it's a fair tournament. So you're not, you know, you're not having to worry about you got a bad draw and you're in a tougher pool than everybody. Everybody, everybody gets to prove their worth here. That's great. And, and one last question from a development standpoint, what, what do you think uh, the difference is between the type of player you look for in 3x3 as opposed to 5x5? You know, that's, we're trying to figure that out here. While basketball is hugely pos- popular in this country, there really isn't a 3x3 player ecosystem. So we have to create that. And of course, we, we go into the 5x5 ecosystem and, you know, uh, get players into the 3x3 system that we're creating. But they're, you know, the elite players in this country, both on the men's and women's side, have professional opportunities. And the 3x3 opportunities don't aren't equal to those other 5x5 opportunities in terms of a professional career. So you're, you're trying to balance somebody who's really good or they're really good, they're going to go play professionally, but can we get them for some handful of time during the year to do the 3x3? And how FIBA has made it, they, they really designed this for what they call a different generation of player. So they're not looking for your typical 5x5 players to, to play. They want people who are going to specialize in 3x3, not come out of the NBA. Um, so we're, we're still learning every day on the best way to approach getting players involved for us. So we shouldn't expect a team of, say, LeBron, Steph Curry, and Trey Young anytime soon? No, you know, FIBA didn't want that. <laughs> you know, they, they, like I said, want a different generation of people. And they really want 3x3 being played year-round. And with the NBA or with many of the professional leagues around the, around the world, the domestic season eats up a good portion of their time. So you have to qualify uh, on a pretty rigid schedule and you have, you have to play a lot of 3x3 basketball to, to be eligible as a player to be in there and the number of players that play from your country help your federation get enough points to be eligible as a country so it's similar and while this is a team sport the qualification process is really similar to tennis or uh, golf where you know those athletes are playing on a uh, tour year round and at the end of their tour they will have you know based on how many times they played in grand slams if you're a tennis player they'll they'll have a ranking and that that's what you have to do you have to be able to play in enough FIBA events to earn a ranking to be eligible for the uh, national team events well, Jim, this has been great. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule leading up to Tokyo to join us. And we wish you uh, the best of luck and bring home three gold medals for us. Thank Thanks. you very much. It's great to Learned be with you. So, Rich, you, over the course of your career, have helped both golf and surfing to actually get into the Olympics, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. What would you say some of the lessons you learned during those processes were? Well, those those were both interesting examples because there were established professional leagues, PGA Tour, for example, and World Surf League, uh, that had to work with international federations 
which is, which are the bodies that the IOC recognizes and brings into the games. So that added an interesting wrinkle. But in terms of the sports themselves, IOC looked at the worldwide popularity of the sport and they wanted to, and TV ratings are a good way to do that. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that they had top players participating. They wanted to make sure that they had both men and women. Uh, and they wanted to see whether this would be something that would have appeal to people of all ages. Um, what's, I know you've worked with bowling over the years. What's been their experience? Yeah, it's been, uh, one where they've, uh, they've been working at this for decades and have come very close. And then when you, when you look at some of the factors that you talk about, you have in the United States, you have an existing, uh, PBA tour, uh, that's on TV fairly regularly. You have great popularity, especially in Asia, but also to a lesser extent in Europe and, and other continents. Uh, Australia, it's, it's pretty popular. And, uh, they for a long time have been working to try to get in. In fact, they they uh, were on the initial cut uh, for additional sports that would be added to Tokyo uh, as an exhibition sport, and then in the end were taken off because the IOC felt that there was one or two other sports that may be a little better and more popular for the uh, younger generation. And so for that reason, uh they didn't make it onto on the uh, the uh, exhibition sports in Tokyo, but they'll continue to work on that. And I think there's still a good chance that sometime in the future we'll see it. You know, some of the lessons is obviously it's very, very political. You know, making sure that you know the right people within the IOC is very important. Uh, and, again, going back to some of the issues that you talked about, Rich, you know, making sure that this is something that appeals to the younger generation is really key. And, you know, the IOC and the Olympics is a very, very big enterprise. And so, you know, the question is, what do you bring to the Olympics? What do you bring to us that makes this uh, incredibly popular event even more popular? And that becomes a very, very big factor. Uh, Rich, for something like golf, you know, it's an interesting situation where you have a very popular sport worldwide, uh and what were some of the, the things that they had to overcome, do you think, to get into the Olympics? Um, well, they had to give the IOC some assurance that top players were going to play. Uh, that We ran into some problems with that, with the Zika virus uh, for Rio. Um, and then we had COVID. But... You know, we've gotten a good representation of top players, and I think one of the important factors is a number of the top men and a number of the top women lobbied hard for golf to get into the games. That kind of shows a commitment from those top athletes, doesn't it, that they'll, they'll probably, if they're lobbying for it to be part of the games, they'll come. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about on surfing? You know, surfing is kind of from the other end of the spectrum that you have a very – it's a relatively smaller sport, uh, but you have a very, very strong fan base that, that will do about anything for the sport. So how, what was the strategy there? It is fun to go to surfing competitions, I will tell you that <laughs> as a lawyer. Um, 
I think that I think the strategy is that this is something that is so appealing to a younger audience, and you can see that from their TV numbers. Um, you know, one of the new sports for Paris is breakdancing, or they call it break, I think. Um, and and so it is it is that focus uh, on getting youth. And, and younger adults interested in the Olympic Games. And Rich, talk a little bit about the you know, the exhibition sports. You know, how do those those are selected by the particular organizing committee, subject to IOC approval, right? Yeah, there's. It's a little different. In the old days, there used to be something that was actually called an exhibition sport, and it wasn't a sport in the Olympic Games. Uh, and you got a smaller medal. <laughs> it didn't count it for the gold medal count. And I don't think they do that anymore unless they're going to do it with a special exception. What they do now as part of the new program is allow the host country to say, we would like these sports, extra new sports in the Olympic Games, whether they're new sports or whether they're new disciplines. So, for example, karate will be a sport in Japan, whether it will continue to be a sport. I, I, I should know, but I can't remember off the top of my head whether it's going to be a sport in Paris. Um, um, surfing is a new, a new sport, not just a discipline, and it'll be both in uh, Tokyo and Paris and the like. Baseball and softball are back. They were in for a long time. They were out and now they're back and uh, they're back for uh, Tokyo and I think they're back for Paris as well. And that's an interesting situation. I mean, they were regular sports on the regular uh, slate of sports that were for the Olympics and then were taken off, but now are back on for we think the next two and then and probably a good chance that they'll be in LA as well. Yeah. And, and that they would be sports that LA would be interested in having. Yeah. So let's look into our crystal ball for a second. What do you think would be interesting sports for LA to, uh, to propose? I mean, that we're only seven years away from it. It's always seemed so far away. Now we're seven years away and these kind of decisions will be made in the next few years. What do you think would well, be interesting? I can tell you the constraints. It isn't going to be just men's sports. <laughs> um, it will be sports that are uh, really interesting to youth, uh, like climbing is going to be one of the new sports, for example, in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure, and, and skateboarding has been in and will continue to be in. I think there may be more mixed Sports, meaning men and women competing as a team or relays or those kinds of things. Um, in fact, swimming is doing that uh, yeah. in Tokyo, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I would see more of that coming in other sports as well, both as a way to get your gender numbers up and because it's perceived as being more fun. What that may mean is that men's events uh, get canceled. I mean, men's, one of the 
men's race walking events got canceled. When they brought in, I think it was women's pole vault in athletics. Um, so that, that'd be one thing. And then I don't, I don't know. What are your thoughts on other sports that might be out on the horizon? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think you'll see, as we've talked about, uh, baseball and softball very likely be on there given the great popularity in the U.S. and especially in this hemisphere. Uh, but as far as other sports, I think it's going to be those sports that at the time when the decisions made are viewed as really appealing to the younger generation and, like you said, maybe help with the gender numbers or certainly don't hurt them uh, and create some excitement for the IOC. I mean, the, one of the concerns that the IOC has been working on for a, for a number of years is just to make sure that the incredible popularity that it enjoyed during, for our generations will continue to the next generations. And to do that, you have to make sure you keep up with the times because the, the sports that we loved growing up aren't necessarily the sports that kids today love growing up. And you, and you can see examples of that. I think the first time snowboarding was in the Olympic Games was 1998. Well, I mean, it would be snowboarding is incredibly popular now. It became incredibly popular then. It's hard to imagine the Olympics without snowboarding. Um, you know, competitions like ski cross. Uh, are lots of fun to watch. Skateboarding is in the Olympics now. Uh, inline skating is in the Olympics. Uh, all things that kids do and love. Uh, so, you know, I'm a couple generations away, <laughs> but if you're younger, what, what kinds of things, you know, did your daughters do and love and that their peers are going to be in, into, uh, you know, a lot of things that you just mentioned, uh, <laughs> snowboarding is big. Uh, the, uh, ski cross is, is something that they always, uh, would get around the TV to watch because that's such an exciting event. Uh, but you know, I also would say one of the, one of the things that the IOC has to deal with is the excitement that, that some of the traditional sports generate. For example, I'll never forget, my daughter, who was, I think, at the time, maybe in seventh or eighth grade, uh, when Michael Phelps was swimming to get maybe his sixth gold medal, everybody at the party stopped. There were maybe six or eight or ten girls that age. They stopped and they wanted to watch Michael Phelps because he was such a phenomenon. And so I think that's the that's the tension the IOC always has to focus on is how do we, A, increase the excitement for our existing sports while also creating those new, having bringing on those new sports that are, so interesting and exciting for the younger generation. And, and it's interesting. Um, a lot of sports thrive and sometimes even survive uh, as a result of the fact that they have superstars. So mm -hmm. Michael Phelps was a huge shot in the arm for swimming. You know, Kelly Slater in... Uh, surfing. How about Sean White for Yeah, Sean for White and snowboarding. You talked about the perfect time. Man, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, to have someone like that when you're starting a new sport in the Olympics, that's a tremendous boost. Right. For sure. Right. And, and you can look at, and you can look at the X Games. You know, they're 13 year old girls winning events. Right. <laughs> so. Well, good. Well, Rich, this has been a lot of fun. We thank you all for tuning in and uh, keep an eye out for our next podcast.
Thanks.